Father, we just celebrate together as your people the fact that you preserve us. Father, we do not preserve ourselves. We don't come into your presence this morning. We don't gather and sing these songs. We don't open your word because of anything that we can do in and of ourselves. Father, we are unworthy apart from the blood of Christ. We celebrate that today. That we've broken every promise we've made. And if it were possible, we would destroy the covenant that you have offered to us through the blood of Christ. And yet you, in your kindness and in your mercy, in your steadfast love, you, are, you have upheld us. Father, we gather to make much of you this morning because of the work that you have done and because of the blood of Christ shed for us. Father, he is our hope. Teach us that more fully this morning. Father, let us see the beauty of Christ. Father, let us see the wisdom of the gospel. Father, more fully, would we feel and sense the presence of your Holy Spirit sent by your Son to comfort us, to cause us to continue Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Father, we know that even this week we have broken your laws. We have strayed from your commandments. Father, we have made idols of things that you have created. Our hearts are prone to wander. And this pastor, this saint, feels it. Father, we ask on the promise found in the gospel that our sins be forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Father, we pray that that gospel that we cling to this morning, the gospel that allows us to even gather here, we pray that that gospel would be lifted up, that good news would be lifted up, and that those that are gathering with the church this morning, Father, those that are even on the side streets and in the alleyways, Father, here under the shadow of this steeple, that they too would see and hear and come to know and hope in this same good news, this same gospel that you have given to us. Father, we pray that this would be true. Father, we pray that as your word is opened on Virginia Avenue, there amongst those saints on the south end of town with Pastor Jerry Cooper, Father, we pray that your word, that your gospel would go forth, that it would nourish that group of saints, that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged. Father, that those saints and these saints here, Father, that even small, even in small ways and in incremental measurements we would look more and more like Christ our sanctification would be more realized as a result of our spending time in your word this morning father we pray that over both congregations father we also pray that over our brothers and sisters 
there ministering, sharing the gospel, planting new churches in East Asia. God, we lift them up to you. We pray your protection around them this morning and this week. Father, we pray for their provision. Father, we pray for their safety. Even as we read in the text this morning, Father, we know that persecution will come to your people. We don't ask that you save them from persecution, but that you would be present with them in the midst of it. And that your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to them, would create a faithfulness in their life, that they would, to the end, never recant, never abandon the mission, but continue to hold forth the word of life in dark places. Father, we ask all of these things again in the name of Jesus, the spotless lamb whose blood was shed for his church. We claim these promises in full faith. Now as we turn to your word, we pray blessings. We pray that you'd feed us now and we ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want to welcome you. My name is Josh McLean. Most of you know me, some of you very well. And uh, I want you to know that I'm glad that you're here and it's good to be with you. I know you didn't get up this morning to come and see me. Uh, I know that's not why you're here, but I'm going to receive it in some small way as that's why you're here, and uh, I'm going to rejoice in that because it's good to see some faces for once. We've been locked up for some time, and it's good, it's good to be here. It's good to see with you guys, or to, to look at the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, you probably noticed a couple kids walking out the door just now. They're going uh, to be learning this morning a little bit more about God, and particularly this morning, they're going to be learning that God is good. What does it mean that God is good? That's not the topic for today. You ask one of those kiddos, and I'm sure they'll give you a great explanation about the, uh, the, this idea that God is, in fact, good. But for us, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. We've been in Mark for a couple weeks, uh, or I could maybe say uh, a couple years. Uh, by God's grace, we'll, we'll work our way through this. Uh, today, we're going to start Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. Lord willing, at the end of December, and uh, we'll take a little bit of a break for, for a Christmas series. Um, And then at the end of December, Pastor Chris is going to be opening up the rest of Mark chapter 13. Um, And then uh, we've got some exciting stuff that's planned for um, the uh, January and the new year, Lord willing. But today, again, we're going to be beginning chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. The human heart has a desire naturally given by God for several things. One of those things it is, is a desire to enjoy or to behold beauty. Beauty. It's demonstrated by the people that we try to hang out with, the things that we put in our homes, that we hang on the walls, the things that we collect, the things that we go and see when we're on vacation. The things that we aspire, the places we aspire to retire at. We have a desire to see beauty. Furthermore, we have a desire to obtain, to collect, and to enjoy wisdom. Like beauty, this is a God-given desire that we have. Some of us are more challenged when it comes to gathering beauty. Others of us are more challenged when it comes to gathering wisdom. Myself, challenged in both. There's a third That each of us, deep down in our hearts, desire, and that is to not be alone. Desire to have community. Desire to be in the presence of others. Sentient, 
others that enjoy beauty, others that enjoy wisdom. Human hunger for beauty, humans hunger for beauty, they hunger for wisdom, and they hunger for presence. And here's the difficulty, here's the big problem if we have one, and we do, we have many, but this morning in light of our text, the big problem that we have is that we're easily distracted by the temporary. We get confused as to what is the most beautiful thing, what is the most precious thing. We're easily distracted. We're distracted by the lesser, the temporary and not the eternal. Furthermore, part of our problem as humans is, is, that, is that we're deceived by the counterfeit. We're easily deceived. We're easily stolen from. We think one way is the right way. We lean into our own understanding. We lean into the understanding of false teachers. What makes sense in our own eyes, in our own minds, and we're easily overcome with deception. In our, in our search for wisdom. And finally, as it relates to our problems, you didn't need to know how many more problems you actually have. You probably already gathered a few that you were aware of this week. I'll stack three more on. We're easily distracted by the temporary, we're deceived by the counterfeits, and we're overcome by anxiety. This is part of the human condition, the fallen human condition, easily distracted by the temporary, deceived by the counterfeit, and by anxieties. Have you sensed these things in your own life? Whether you're 15 years old this morning or 65, you've seen evidence of those three things in your life. Something that you thought was beautiful, something that you thought was precious, you soon found out was neither. At least you found something better, more beautiful, more precious. Something that you thought was True. Maybe you found out to be a lie. Furthermore, in all these things, regardless of your age, regardless of your personal experiences, you have been overcome with anxieties, although some of us more prone than others. Jesus, aware of these conditions, that we're aware not just in this church here and this gathering of the saints, but also in the saints that were gathered around him there in Mark chapter 13, Aware of these conditions, present in them, ever the shepherd, he begins to work in Mark chapter 13 to prepare his children, his sheep, his disciples for what is to come. And frankly, what is to come was incredibly challenging for them. Well, we won't experience in our life exactly what those disciples did in the early church of the first century, in the second century, and so on and so forth. The nature is very similar. So his words for the disciples there in those days in that chapter and the words then for us as well, the way that we apply it will be very similar. And so this morning, I want you to just take a moment and imagine that we are sitting at the feet of the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the kind and gentle shepherd Jesus. And him knowing what we need, him knowing our problems, our struggles, our weaknesses, and knowing what we'll face, he sits down with these words. So Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. This is what the word of God says. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be 
there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are about to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of God. This is the word of our Lord and Savior. Let's go to God now and ask him to bless this in our ears. Father, again, we pause and we come to you knowing that in our desire for wisdom, in our, de- in our hunger for beauty, we are unable to understand apart from your Holy Spirit. We are unable to see apart from you supernaturally working in us. So we fall humbly at your feet now. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand. Show us Jesus more clearly this morning. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And so we have a big problem. We're easily distracted by the temporary. We're deceived by the counterfeit so easily. And we're overcome by anxiety all the time. That's our predicament. And is there a solution? Well, there is, in fact, a solution. Here's the, if we have a big problem today, here's the big solution. Jesus is the essence of beauty. He is the epitome of wisdom. And he is the embodiment of presence. Jesus is the essence of beauty. He is the epitome of wisdom and the embodiment of presence. Three human hungers that Jesus completely satisfies are this, the the hunger for beauty. He is beyond all earthly beauty. The hunger for wisdom, he is above all human wisdom. And the hunger for presence, he is with us in every trial we face. Let's look at the text here. I'm walking slowly through. Look back at verse one. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Here Jesus has been in the big city for some time now. He's been with his disciples. Many of these men were fishermen, common folk, not city boys, country boys. 
not spent a ton of time in the city, frankly, did not have the time. From, early, from their early days working with their fathers, here, one of them, we're not sure who it is, let's just imagine it's Peter. Lord, look at these wonderful stones, what great buildings. Here, Jesus had had a full day, He'd been engaging a large crowd with teaching. He'd been defending himself and, and his mission and the Father from verbal assaults from the religious elite. Now the day is coming to an end. And so was his, as it was his custom, he's leaving the Temple Mount and he's heading across the Kidron Valley towards the east up to the Mount of Olives. As they prepare to leave, one of his disciples takes notice of the grandeur of these buildings there on top of this mountain, this man-made or man-expanded uh, mountain. He looks at all these buildings, his jaw hits the floor. Maybe he's seen them before, he's been there for some time, of course. But he's just overcome with the beauty and the grandeur. He draws attention to, Jesus, to the building by the eyes of Jesus. Look at these stones. Here, this temple made of white marble, covered in pure gold all over the place. The temple towers over that city like a snow-capped mountain. Walls were comprised of stones larger than your, mod- your mom's modern SUV. Some of the columns were reported to be so large that three grown men, if they put their fingertips together, couldn't wrap around the columns there on some of the porches. Solomon, he had built the first temple for the Lord, but it had been destroyed for some time now. It had been quite some time, in fact. Uh, when the Jews returned from exile after the destruction of the temple and after their exile, uh, they worked to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. But then came Herod. Herod was known for his lavish building projects. He saw an opportunity to kind of win the approval of the Jews, but also to exhibit his prowess for building, make a name for himself, or to further his name, rather. So he began to remodel the temple, and he spared no expense. He expanded the temple mount, put up incredibly large retaining walls, raised the the temple up, and built porches and, and rooms all around it. And you would come around the corner Heading up to Jerusalem, the pilgrims' ex, 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 uh, uh, expressions of what it would look like were just incredible. He started his work there in 20 B.C., and it wasn't even finished until sometime around 26 A.D., 46 years to remodel this mountain, this temple. You could take one look at it and know by the size of the stones and the, the beauty of the craftsmanship that it would be there for ages and ages to come it's not like it was leaning over and disciples and people were just like taking bets on whether it would fall this year or next year or this week or next week wasn't going to topple anytime soon and this disciple here he is struck by the beauty of this man-made structure and i don't want to spend long on this but i do want to offer a warning It's sad that so often we'll be struck by the beauty of man-made structures, but we'll minimize the beauty of God himself. Hagerstown Church, many of us have been vagrants, wanderers for some time, from our beginning, from the planting of the church, meeting where we could, where we were able to. And now here in this beautiful sanctuary, painted walls, new TVs, 
carpet coming soon, tall ceilings. We might think, what a beautiful, beautiful place. And indeed it is. Now, nothing like the temple in those days. But the warning is this. Let's not be so struck by the beauty of things that we make with our own hands that we forget the one who made us with his. We're all like the disciples. We're all tempted to be distracted by the temporary and even attached to the temporary. Instead of worshiping the God that formed our hearts and our lungs and our minds with his own words, with his own hands. We worship the things that we make with ours. We're distracted by the temporary. Here the disciples have done nothing wrong. And yet the time that they have with their Lord and Savior is drawing to a close. And they're distracted. But David got it. I think of Psalm 27. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. If you're quick, you can turn there with me. It won't be on the screen, unless they're quick. Psalm 27, verse 4, David says, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is King David. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why would you do that? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David got it. David had everything he could have ever wanted. He had every iPhone, every car, every new pair of shoes. He had it all. And he still said, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing have I asked of God, and that is to be in his house so that I can gaze upon the beauty of his face. David got it. Let's not miss it. There are beautiful things for us to enjoy, for us to gaze upon, for us to collect. But at the end of our lives, we'll not say that we wish we saw more sunsets. We'll not say that we wish we would have collected more paintings, more bottle caps or whatever it is. But we'll say we wish we would have spent more time gazing on the face of God through the portal of His holy word. And so, seek beauty. But don't be distracted. Don't settle for the lesser. Don't, don't dwell on the temporary. Look to the eternal. There's three human hungers we're talking about this morning. And one of them that we've just listed out, Jesus completely satisfies. He is beyond all earthly beauty. The temple was made with human hands. Jesus made those human hands and he created the stones needed to build the temple. He is eternal and the temple was temporary. The temple is where blood was shed, but it became obsolete when Jesus, the eternal one, shed his own blood. 2,000 years ago, the temple was laid to rest. It was destroyed in 70 AD and it's never been resurrected. Not yet. Jesus was laid in the grave. Three days later, he arose. He was resurrected. He is beautiful beyond comparison. There's nothing wrong, again, with remarking about the beauty of a building or even a gorgeous sunrise, but don't forget the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't settle for less. At any rate, 
must have taken about 20 minutes, maybe more, give or take, I'm not really sure, for them to get out of the temple on the eastern gate there to cross over the Kidron Valley to begin to climb up towards Bethany there on the Mount of Olives. Jesus had just told his disciples that the temple and all of its buildings, all of its porches would be laid down on the ground, destroyed, raised. Not one stone, Jesus said, would be left another. And by the way, it's almost impossible for us to know exactly where the temple was. That's how destroyed it really, really was. But at any rate, here the disciples are walking there with Jesus, and I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what was said. Perhaps they talked. Maybe they didn't. But I imagine they were a bit quiet as their imaginations were running wild, each of them thinking about the incredible statement that Jesus had just made. Not one stone would be left on the other. Thinking about the personal implications of their own life. Thinking about the implications on their nation, the nation of Israel. It says in verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, and so they've exited at the end of the day, they've walked together up, maybe in silence, When they get to the top, they're now over, above the temple, being able to look right across the valley into the temple. This is what it says. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? I don't know if we can truly fathom as 21st century Westerners exactly what was being said when, and felt in the hearts of these first century disciples when they heard Jesus say that one stone would not be left on another. They needed to know when this is going to happen. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just needed to know more? You just had to have the answer, God, why is this happening? When will this happen? How are you going to accomplish all of these things? You just needed to know more. You needed to have that information. You needed to have that wisdom. In an attempt to satisfy, or to satisfy desires such as these, the desire for knowledge and wisdom concerning future things, many have offered their own information. Many have made their, have made their own attempts as to answer these questions. When will this happen? When will that happen? Again and again, so-called prophets within the Jehovah's Witness movement have offered false predictions of the second coming, the end of the world. Time and time again, I could list them out. It's a temptation. It's a desire, a strong one, to think that you know what will happen, when it will happen, what the signs are. In 1988, many uh, Christians were seduced by uh, Edgar Wisnett. And he wrote 88 reasons why the rapture is in 1988. I don't know about you. I'm convinced the rapture did not take place in 1988. But even still then, all types of people are making attempts and stabs at when the world will come to an end. I remember going to bed in 1999 thinking, will, when I wake up, will I wake up? Will the world be ending? Will it all be over? And then again in 2012, I think there was one in 20, 2009, the world was supposed to end in 2009. It happens all the time, doesn't it? People have clear understandings. They have clarity from God. They, they take a stab at when and how these things are to take place. It's this desire to have wisdom. It's the desire to understand and to know. Of 
Of course, we can relate. We can poke fun at all the other denominations and cults as well. But at the end of the day, we can relate. We want to know what to expect. That hunger for information is met by Jesus with wisdom and kindness and gentleness. He knows what they want. He knows the answer that they're looking for, but he doesn't give that to them. No, instead he gives them actually what they need. It's interesting that in these verses that follow, starting in verse 5, as Jesus is addressing their question. It's interesting that Jesus does not give them any dates. He doesn't encourage them to find any dates. He doesn't tr- encourage them to identify antichrists or false prophets or who the four horsemen of the apocalypse are or anything like that. Instead, he warns them, and by extension, us, to be on guard. It's the Greek word, to, to look, to see. He says that in verse 9. He says that in verse 23. He says it in verse 33. We'll look at that in a few weeks. He encourages encourages them to stay awake. Again, in verse 33, 35, and 37. He tells us nobody, not, not even he himself, not even the Son of Man knows. Only the Father, when the end will come. In light of all of these things, he encourages us. It will come. It will come suddenly. And we are to remain faithful in our service to the Master. That's verse 35. But he doesn't tell them when it's going to happen, and he doesn't encourage them to to place dates. But what he does and give them is 19. In chapter 13, he gives them 19 imperatives that they're to do. These are things that he commands his disciples to do. And again, by extension, us. Those imperatives, you can look for them. 19 of them, verses 5 to 37. And what are they helping us to do? Well, they're helping us to be prepared for the end. Helping the disciples in those days to be prepared for the end. And what are they to do? Chiefly, look out, stay on guard, and to stay awake. I'll be honest with you, though, as I always try to be. There are several things about this passage that are a gift to us, that are a a gift to me even. Uh, Chiefly, um, chief among them is the fact that Jesus predicted, he predicted the destruction of the temple with incredible accuracy several decades before it took place. I love that. But what I have found difficult is to understand the actual context. What's taking place here? What is Jesus saying? What are these things? What is actually going to happen? What are the end times? Did they already take place? Are they going to take place in the future? I imagine if we took a poll, there'd be quite a few more more opinions in this room than there are uh, armpits uh, as to how many uh, different views there actually are of this passage. It could be really put into three categories. Option one is that, that this passage, chapter 13, is it's only about the destruction of Jerusalem and it's only about the temple. Good, faithful Bible scholars believe that. That chapter 13, everything included there, all took place in that physical generation and it was all about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of the age of the Jews. But there's another option, and it's the opposite. Option two would say this has nothing to do, it's all figurative, it has nothing to do with Jerusalem, it has nothing to do with the actual temple, and it's really about the end of the age, it's the end of the world, the telos. 
about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's option two. Again, faithful, godly Bible scholars, many of them take that position. Option three, I think it's the best. It's a little bit of both. Option three says, no, this is about the destruction of the temple. This is about the fall of Jerusalem. It is about literally one stone not being left on the other, but it's also about the second coming of Jesus. It's also about the end of time when he will return to judge both the living and the dead. And I think that's the best option. At any rate, you may disagree with me. But Jesus, he doesn't address the soon-coming destruction of the temple, uh, or, or I'm sorry, he does address the, the, the soon-coming destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, and in doing so, he really provides a preview of coming events that the Jews and the disciples particularly saw were connected with the second coming and the age to come. But you might be asking as a 21st century American, what does the destruction of the temple, what does the destruction of the, in the fall of Jerusalem have to do with the second coming and the end of the age, the end of the world as we know it? What do they have to do one with the other? There's a theologian I'm very thankful for. This is what he says in, re, in regards to that. He says, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which prompted the disciples to inquire about the timing of these things. And why? Why did they begin to inquire about the timing of the end and these things? Here's why. The disciples conflated the end of the world with the end of the temple as they knew it. Why? Because the massiveness of the Temple Mount was outsized for this small city. It was the central point of their lives and of their culture. At that time, the Temple Mount footprint, it accounted for about 15% of the city of Jerusalem. They couldn't literally imagine life ever being the same had the temple not existed moving forward. It truly, in their minds, would be the end of the age, the end of an era. I tried to think of how I could relate that to us today. Maybe if you're 15, 16, 20, maybe even up to the, in your 30s. Imagine that the inter internet went down. Imagine that it not only went down, but it went away. Never to be used again. Imagine that just for a second. Think of the implications. Think of how your life would be different. Your home life, your work life, your leisure, everything for you might change. And you might say, well, how could that happen? How could literally the internet just go away? Something catastrophic, something crazy would have to occur for that to take place, right? Let's shift gears. What if all of a sudden the city of D.C. didn't exist anymore? The Capitol building, the White House, the lawn, all of it, gone. If I were to give you that news this morning, you'd be asking, how? What caused that? Imagine all the different ways that you could explain that in your mind. Well, this would have had to happen and that would have... How can the world even go on with that taking place? The weight of that for an entire city in the capital, uh, capital of our nation to just dissolve and disappear. They wanted to know why. And they clearly saw that if something so great as the temple, so long-lasting and firm as the temple mount could just evaporate, how could life even continue to go on? 
And so they conflated the two together, and for good reason. But what does Jesus say to them, to this question that they have, this desire for wisdom, this, this insatiable uh, hunger for information? What does he tell them? Well, look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Jesus, the temple is going to be destroyed? When? What are the signs of this? No date. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. How could they lead many astray? How could they lead maybe even perhaps some of the disciples, some of the greater number of the early church? Could they possibly be part of this group that would be led astray? Jesus doesn't say they may be led astray. He said they will lead many astray. And how will they do that? Well, they'll literally claim to come in the name of Jesus. It's debatable as to whether Jesus is saying they'll even claim to be God. That I am he is the ego me. That I am that I am. And they'll lead some astray. Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. It's another imperative. See that no one leads you astray. Another imperative. Do not be alarmed. Don't be surprised. I'm telling you this right now so you know it's going to take place. It must take place, but the end is not yet. These, will ha- these things will happen. Many will come in my name. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's it's happening in between the time that Jesus speaks and the time that the temple actually falls. But he says, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom there will be earthquakes in various places there will be famines but these are but the beginning of the birth pains here in these verses jesus wants or he i'm sorry he warns against people who mislead false messiahs people claiming to be him but he also warns against events that will also be misleading when this catastrophic event takes place you might think it's the end of the world but jesus says hey that war to end all wars That war between nations that you are even subjugated by, that might seem like it's the end, but that is just the beginning of the birth pains. So he warns against false messiahs, but he also warns against these events, earthquakes, famines, other things, pestilence. Let's look at this first idea, though. This first thing that he's warning against, these false messiahs, these false teachers who would mislead. The New Testament is full of warnings concerning false teachers. The Apostle Paul is faithful to warn us about this, and Jesus himself is as well. He says, many will come in my name. Some will even claim to be me. They'll claim to be Messiah. They'll claim even to be God. Look out for them. He uses that word several times. Look out or blepo. Watch, see. He uses it in uh, uh, Mark 13, 2, Mark 13, 5, verse 9, verse 23, verse 33. It's translated differently depending on your translation, but even in most translations, translate it differently depending on the context of that verse. But look out, caution, be aware, look out for. How do they look out? What are they to look out for? Well, they're to look out for false teachers, false words, and how will they know what is true and what is false? We'll be like the Bereans. We'll be like the Bereans. How will Jesus' disciples know if somebody's a false teacher or not? 
Well, they'll do exactly what the Bereans did. In Acts 17, verse 11, the Word of God says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether the things were so, the things that Paul was saying, the testimony that Paul was giving. They were searching diligently and with eagerness the very words of God. Is this true? Does what this guy say, does it line up with what the word of God says? How are we in this day and age to to worry or to to ward off and to look out for false messiahs? Well, we are to be students of the word of God. One historian says, said the first person after the time of Jesus Christ definitely known to have claimed to be the Messiah was a guy by the name of, I'm just going to take a stab at it, Bar Kokhba, the leader of that, la- of that last great Jewish revolt in AD 132. Uh, and he, says, he goes on to say there have been various other claimants since. Uh, another guy says that up to our day, uh, and he wrote this in 53, he says there's a record of some 64 false messiahs who have tried to lead Israel astray, claiming to be the Messiah, but they were rejected. And the number of pretenders, he goes on to say, is not yet complete, uh, but many mislead, many catch people off guard, many pretenders uh, draw those away after this false teaching. It's dangerous. But how do we protect ourselves about that? How do we protect ourselves from that? We do exactly what the Word of God says, exactly what Jesus says. We look out, and we look out by looking to the Word of God. And just as Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone comes after me preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. Don't believe it. Look away. Call them what they are. False teachers, liars, headed for hell themselves. This is... False teachers. These are persons that would, de- that would uh, deceive the people of God. But he goes on to talk about activities, circumstances that could do the same thing. Wars, earthquakes, famines. He says these are all birth pangs. I'm not exactly sure. And I've never experienced the birth pang before. I've not experienced the, what they call Braxton Hicks. But uh, I've been around some folks uh, who have. And my, uh, I'm not, a, I, I guess maybe because I have a wife, I'm an expert now in those things because she's birthed four children into the world. I won't actually, I'm going to lay that card down. I'm not going to take it, although it's tempting. But from what, I, from what I understand, there is an experience that a woman can have where she has false labor pains. Maybe even labor pains beginning to take place it really is the beginning of labor but maybe they really are about to give birth or to deliver this child but even then early on how many times women did you call the hospital did you call your doctor did you get all over webmd and the internet thinking hey this is the time it's ready today it's coming out i can't stop it and your doctor's like chill out go home take a nap eat some ice cream i'll see you in a couple weeks how often? Well, that's, that's probably what Jesus is using, that reference, this birth pangs. It's Braxton Hicks. It's not, it's not even time yet. These things will happen in between now, when Jesus is in the time that they actually will happen. These other events are taking place in the meantime, but Jesus is saying they are not telling you it's time. Not yet. This is just the beginning. Wars, earthquakes, famines, they're all birth pangs. And by the way, it's interesting to note this. What is caused what is the root cause for war 
James tells us sin, lust, selfishness, idolatry. What, what's caused earthquakes? What's caused famines, pestilence? Where do all these things come from? Where do they find their root, their source? It could go all the way back to the fall. All the way back to the fall. Interesting. I'll just let that lay there. But here we've come to sit at Jesus' feet as he teaches end times 101. We're here with the disciples. We're expecting Jesus in this great chapter of end times to tell us about dates, to tell us about sequences. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't tell us anything about dates. He doesn't tell us anything concrete. But what he does tell us to do is to be on guard and to not be fooled. Don't be anxious. He doesn't tell us when things will happen. He does say they will happen. And he says that we're to be ready. Three human hungers that Jesus completely satisfies. One for beauty. He is beyond all earthly beauty. And here now we've just looked. Three human hungers that Jesus completely satisfies. Two wisdom he is above all human wisdom the danger of false teaching is that we gather teachers to ourselves we have itching ears we want the teachers to say what we want to hear we have an idea of what we believe is true of what we want to be true and then we begin to amass teachings and pamphlets and it's amazing how we can assume how we can consume and gather things and sniff out the thing that says what we want it to say the teacher the podcast the book we gather them to ourselves instead of coming to the word of God to allow it to speak to us we as I said a few months ago come to the word of God speaking to it bring a pretext develop its own new context and we're misled recently I was having a discussion with a friend we were talking about one particular doctrine. And he said, I just don't think that sounds like Jesus. And I began to think, what, which Jesus are we talking about? Well, of course there's only one Jesus. Of course there's only one. And yet at the same time, so many people, so many of us have been tempted and fallen into this trap in our search for wisdom to fall, into, to fall prey to human wisdom. And as it's been said... God created man in his own image and then man repaid the favor. Tempted to create God in our own image according to what we would prefer, what we want, what we think is wise. And yet the Bible warns us and says, let every man be a liar and God be true. Don't walk according to your own knowledge, according to your own wisdom. That's the warning. Which Jesus do you worship? Which Jesus do you believe? ran across something that highlights the wisdom of Jesus in a physical sense. John Phillips, he points out that the Romans never intended to destroy the temple in 70 AD. The Roman conqueror Titus, during the siege of Jerusalem, he says, he ordered that the temple was to be spared. But his edict ran counter to the word of Christ, who had decreed that it would be utterly ruined 30 years, 30-some years before. And so... We end up seeing happen is that the word of Christ prevailed. I don't. I wasn't there. I don't know. 
But what I am reading is that as the battle raged toward its end, the temple somehow caught fire. Now, other testimonies say that it was intentionally caught fire, but some say, uh, according to John Phillips and his sources, that it accidentally caught fire. And that because of it catching fire and burning, the vast treasure of gold melted into the flames down into the cracks of the building, the stones, and some of the gold found its way into the base even between the massive stones, and that the Roman soldier, soldiers, hungry for spoil, tore the stones apart in order to gather that gold. Again, I wasn't there, but isn't it incredible to see the wisdom, the foreknowledge of Christ here on display? That even in the face of common wisdom and knowledge, that building will never come down. It will be there for eons forward. And even Titus, that Roman conqueror, requesting that it not be destroyed, the greatest human power at that time couldn't even hold it back from happening. No, why? Because of the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, whether you like to admit it or not, you are easy to be misled. Jesus, the great shepherd, he anticipated that and he addresses it. We're easy to be misled. And so he calls us, warning us, look out. Don't be tempted. Don't lean on your own understanding. We've just looked and saw that it's easy It's in our nature to be misled, whether we like to admit it or not. And it's also in our nature to become anxious. And the gentle shepherd now comes to his flock and he speaks to that as well. Verse 9. He says, but be on your guard. Again, same thing. It's just translated as be on your guard. But he's saying, look out. Watch out. Why? Look out for what this time? They will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Here in verse 9, really it seems, or beginning in verse 9, it seems to, to, to be offering for us a synopsis of Paul's life. Beaten, right? We know Paul's testimony before councils, before rulers, turned against by family even. And notice that all of this is actually a part of God's plan for the spread of the gospel. We see that in the book of Acts. Persecution comes, the gospel expands. This is what Jesus is even speaking about. In many ways, the book of Acts is demonstrating for us the fulfillment of so much of what is said here. All of this is part of God's plan. He's encouraging us to not be anxious. He's letting us know beforehand, I want you to know these things are going to happen. In some ways, that might be unsettling that God would be, Jesus himself would be revealing this to his disciples. But in other ways, it's very calming. At least, this will be painful, but at least he knows what's happening. And he's not afraid, and so I'm not afraid. There's some consolation in it. When a child is seeing, hey, this is going to take place, but mom and dad are not worried. And oftentimes when the context is a shot, or some sort of a needle, or maybe even the dentist, doesn't seem to be much consolation. The parents know what will take place, and yet 
the kids are still worried. But I think with the disciples, they had enough understanding and maturity to see that there is some consolation here. That Jesus knows what will take place, and he's not telling them to run away. He's not telling them to back down. He's saying this is all part of the plan. Furthermore, look at what he says here. This is the best part. In verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not for you, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? This promise that Jesus is giving to his disciples and other places, he's told us, John chapter 14, the comforter is coming. Verse 15 of John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and I will beg, and will beg in you. What a beautiful promise. It applies this promise of the Holy Spirit being with Jesus' disciples, with the saints of God. It applies more than to just Him being present and able to speak in your time of need. It's more than that. It's that God will be with you. And that's that third human hunger that we have. And there are many, but there's the desire for beauty. Jesus is beyond all worth, all earthly beauty. There's the desire for wisdom. He is above all. He far exceeds all human wisdom. And finally, we have this insatiable desire for presence. And he is with us. And he is with us in every trial. He sent his spirit. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4. What a beautiful testimony. The apostle Paul says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Jesus sent his spirit to strengthen Paul, to stand with him so that the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. It's a difficult one. Verse 13, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Families abandoning and turning on one another, being hated by those whom you're closest with even. What does he say in verse 13? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now what is he speaking of? Is this a physical salvation? If you can make it through all the pestilence, if you can make it through the wars and the rumors of wars, and if you don't OD on your uh, anxiety medication, then you'll be saved physically. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying if you stay faithful, if you stay true, if you hold fast to the gospel, if you continue to gaze onto the face of Christ, then you'll be saved. He's not saying work really hard and you'll be saved. He's saying that if you persevere, if you remain faithful, it will be evidence that your profession is real. It will be evidence that you truly are saved. It may be tough, but the Lord Jesus Christ will remain faithful to keep us by his power. And those who are truly his, he will not lose. And so stay faithful, stay true, hold fast, 
I can't help but think of Paul writing to the church at Colossae. I don't know if you're doing the Bible reading plan. Me and my D group were doing it. We're really enjoying it. I loved looking at Colossians. And so in, in preparations for this sermon this morning, I couldn't help but think of what Paul says to the church at Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank him when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and we've heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, that hope of salvation. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. Since you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul says, I've got to report this church in Colossae, they, it's legit. They've turned from their sins. They've placed their faith in Jesus. They're growing in their understanding and they're faithful and it's incredible. And Paul says, church, listen, we heard about this and I've I've not stopped praying. When I pray for you, I thank God for you and I continue to pray that this would continue to bear fruit in your life. He's heard these things and he lets them know, I'm praying for you. But then skip down to verse 21. This is where it gets applicable. Verse 21, he says, and you, church at Colossae, Christian, you were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So what's Paul saying? He says, church, I believe that Jesus has shed his blood for you. He says, I believe that you're a Christian. I see evidence of that in your life. And the best evidence of that in your life is if you continue. Their faithfulness is evidence of their salvation. And so he says, I'm praying that you will not shift from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. He says, right now you're hoping in the gospel, you're hoping in the good news of Jesus Christ, that though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. You'll be forgiven because of Jesus. That's your hope. And he says, I hope that you stay there. What is their hope? What is their only comfort I love how the Heidelberg Catechism answers that question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer that I'm about to give you is yours for the taking. What could be, what currently is your only hope in life and in death that you are not your own, but that you belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
goes on to say, he has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the testimony. That's the hope of the church at Colossae. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And so in the face of our anxiety, in the face of persecution, in the face of rumors of wars and even wars and pestilence, in the face of all of these things, what is our hope? What is our comfort in life and in death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. And so church, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of Christ this morning. This shepherd who kneels there, we sit at his feet, and he speaks to us with gentleness and kindness, and he says, look at me, look unto me for beauty. And he looks at them and he says, look to me for wisdom, look to me, the embodiment of wisdom. And furthermore, he says, come to me for, your, for my presence. We're entering into the Christmas season. We celebrate Advent. Advent simply means in the Latin, coming. That God would come down to us. We cherish the name given to Jesus, Emmanuel, which means this, God with us. Jesus is the essence of beauty, God with us. He's the epitome of wisdom, God with us, and he is the embodiment of presence, God with us. I want you to imagine with me quickly as we come to a close. Imagine Mark's initial audience. Imagine you're a part of the church at Rome. Imagine you're still under intense persecution, which they were. And imagine finding this letter written to that church, your church, Imagine reading it in 71 AD. As you, under this intense persecution, you look at Jesus, your Lord and Savior, and you say, look how he shepherded my forebears. Look how he shepherded my brothers. Right before they were about to enter into this persecution, he's so beautiful. And you read on and you see, look how wise he is. And in his wisdom, he's given that wisdom, in his kindness, he's given that wisdom to us. And even now you're saying, now I'm able to read this gospel far from the Middle East. I'm able to understand this godly, divine wisdom by his grace. Furthermore, you're able to see that he is with us in every trial. He promised to send the comforter. How comforted would you be if you were in those shoes? Hagerstown Church, we must be like that early Roman Christian, finding a copy of God's word written for them because it's written for us. And there as we read Mark 13, as we continue, see the beauty of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus with us in every trial. Hagerstown Church, as we walk out of this building this morning, I want to challenge you to not be challenged and to just look at Jesus. Just look at his beautiful face. Look at his face in the word of God. 
Relish in the wisdom that he's extended to us. The world calls it foolishness. We see it as wisdom. And understand this, that he is with us in every trial. No matter what we face, no matter how many, regardless of how many variants there are, regardless of the economic upturn or downturn, he's with us through all these things. Let's celebrate that Jesus this morning. Father, we thank you that in your kindness you have given us your word. And that in that way, Christ is present with us even now as we look at his words and we sit under his teaching and as he has sent his spirit to us, the third person of the Trinity, to help us to understand, to enlighten us. Let we celebrate that. Father, we pray that we would be a people that is marked by looking into the face of Jesus that has one desire to behold the beauty of God, the beauty of our creator, the beauty of our redeemer, the beauty of our comforter who is even with us now. Father, would we, would we be a people that relish in the wisdom of God? Father, would we, would we be marked by an insatiable hunger to read your word and to take it into our hearts? And we would, by that wisdom, be shaped and fashioned into the image of Christ. Father, would we be a people that though we struggle, though we are persecuted, though we are in trials of all kinds, that we rejoice that you are with us, that you've sent the comforter to us. Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. We ask that these things be done. Amen. Hagerstown Church, would you stand? And would you sing and worship the Lord that no, we're going to sing about this idea that whatever God sends our way, it's right. If we face persecution, if we face good things, we face bad things, whatever we receive from God's hand, that we celebrate it and we say that it is good and it is right. And in the midst of all that, look for beauty, look for his wisdom and relish in his presence. Hagerstown Church, would you sing? Whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does, and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all, and so to Him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path, I know He will not leave me. I take content what He has sent, his hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day, 
and patiently I wait His day. Whatever my God ordains is right, Though now this cup and drinking May bitter seem to my faint heart I take it all unshrinking My God is true each morn anew Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall depart and pain and sorrow shall depart whate'er my god ordains is right here shall my stand be taken Though sorrow, need, or death be mine Yet I am not forsaken My Father's care is round me there He holds me that I shall not fall and so to Him I leave it all, and so to Him I leave it all. My Father's care is round me there, He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Church, consider the mind of the disciples as the predictions that Jesus made were starting to come true in their own lives as they faced persecution that they would have never dreamed of. How did they hold firm? How did they have peace? How did they have joy in the midst of those circumstances? Was it not the truth of this song? Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. He holds me that I shall not fall. How do we endure to the end, church? It's by Christ holding us that we would not fall. In that spirit, as we, we close this service, let us sing our doxology, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Not just the blessings of this building here, but the blessings that are of spiritual nature as he makes and he grows and he matures his church. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts.
is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Take us down, church. You are sent.